Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. Welcome to this episode of AI and IoT Success. I am your host, James Caton, and this is where we discuss global AI and IoT innovations with co-workers, colleagues, collaborators, competitors, and even the occasional co-conspirator. You can catch all of our English and Spanish episodes at jamesco.cc. Today we have Mohamed Kamal, CEO of Unbiased.co, talking to us about how analytics can help ensure broad representation in politics, healthcare, and music. Good morning, Mohamed. Good morning, James. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for uh, for joining me today. Um, It's a pleasure. So, uh, Mohamed, you have an interesting background. Um, you've had an interesting progression in in analytics and in AI. Um, that would be that is an interesting story for people to to hear. And wanted to hear from you and have you tell your story, um, your work in analytics, um, in political consulting, um, mm-hmm. and how you use those skills to then transition into uh, a healthcare uh, environment. Um, and then you had an interesting transition from there as well into the uh, the music business. So um, I think it's something that people can learn from. Um, it's an opportunity to really discuss how analytics that applies in one space can easily be translated and show value in, in other spaces. So we'd like to hear that story from you, uh, Mohammed. Uh, sure. But maybe first, uh, if you could tell us about your upbringing, um, you know, where you come from, and how you you migrated into technology and, and into this space. Sure. No, absolutely. Thank you for having me, James. Uh, pleasure to be here. Um, so I'm originally from Sudan. Um, Sudan for, for a while was the biggest country in Africa. That's in 2008, it became um, North Sudan and South Sudan, uh, from the capital of Khartoum. Um, um, I've always been a geek growing up, actually. And um, since I was 16, I was actually coding my own little chat scripts. Um, I was big on something called IRC, Internet Relay Chat, which today is called Slack. Um, and uh, I was big into that back then. Um, I, uh, I came to the U.S. in 2000, late 2000, um, studied computer science right outside of Washington, D.C. And um, surprisingly, um, my first job was at AOL. And I was actually, um, uh, uh, because I had a student visa, I could not get a um, like a, a decent job. So basically I got a, like an internship and and that kind of like started in a very strange way. I was actually started actually cleaning computers inside of a big warehouse in Dulles, Virginia in, in AOL. And um, that, and I said, you know, anything that got me close to to this uh, AOL back in 2000, 2001 was kind of like the epicenter of the internet some capacity. And, um, And right after um, I finished college and um, I decided that, um, you know, I came into AOL and kind of was an interesting transition becoming a software engineer there. Um, a month later, I got laid off <laughs> and, um, and that was a huge acquisition by Time Warner with AOL. And I found myself kind of like, okay, what's next? Um, um, I got a little lucky into working some, you know, interesting companies in DC. Um, If, if you're familiar with DC and you know either you're doing government consulting or you're doing you know a lot of pharmaceutical tech consulting and whatnot um, along that you know say the Dulles corridor or whatnot um, but um, um, got into government consulting for a little bit and um, I find that actually I found that quite boring um, and building big um, IT systems and whatnot. It wasn't until um, around 2005 um, I've just been hearing about this amazing company. Um, it's just been completely just um, building this new building in DC. They're just this new media company. It was called XM Radio, and a lot of ads. It's like and there's a lot of big hoopla around. You know, satellites shooting space. You have your digital radio, and and I, I was trying to get there for for a very long time. And it wasn't until I, there's an interesting story here, this is um, where I was at, um, I was uh, in a reggae small bar in DC and I saw this uh, guy play guitar and I noticed him. he was actually one of my favorite band's lead guitarist and his name is, um, oh, oh man, I can't know. Um, Junior Marvin, 
so Junior Marvin was Bob Marley's lead guitarist. And um, he was playing there, and after the gig, I had a long chat with him, and he just got a job at CSXM managing the reggae station there. And I had a chat with him. He said, you know, he said, you know, I love music. I'm big in technology. I just love to work there and whatnot. Um, he said, one time, just, just show up. Just let me show you a tour around the building. And he just took me a tour around the building. And it was just this massive, beautiful, just building inside of D.C. You know, living in D.C. is just... You know, it is a lot of government um, consulting some, you know, it's, it's, it's the capital. But um, walking to that building kind of like had this young, vibrant, the entire, company, the entire building felt like a big speaker. You know, you know, sometimes you also think like, you know, to me at least big hostels feel like a big, I don't know, big bathroom capacity. <laughs> but, um, but, but it felt like a big speaker. Big speaker. Um, surprisingly, uh, um, um, like two months later, I was able to get a job there, not through Junior Marvin, but I was able to get something there. And that kind of like kicked off my love, my passion mostly for music there as well. Um, coming from Sudan, um, uh, you know, understanding American culture was mostly introduced to you through music and television. But I think working at SiriusXM Radio, having this huge library of music really, um, you know, like, you know, artists would send CDs to all these music programmers, the music directors for these channels, and some CDs would make it to the reader, some CDs won't. And you get to see the music director would have this big, big box of CDs sitting outside their door. And it just says for everyone. I would just pick whatever. It was just like a random, a random CD. I would just pick and just listen to it in my car and my drive back home. I just listened to some really interesting, amazing stuff along the time. And you got really appreciate that culture. And imagine the backdrop, you know, is big politics and whatnot. So, um, so it's such an interesting time. Um, um, that kind of like, you know, got me to a place where I understood where, what fun functioning companies look like, um, being in the forefront of technology. Not, what I mean by technology necessarily, it's, it's just that the broadcast and, and, the, and the streaming and the entire data infrastructure for having such a big, you know, a behemoth of, of, of a streaming platform. You know, we're competing at that time against you know, iTunes and Napster coming in doing some interesting stuff. Um, it was really um, was was give me a good understanding of the scale of what does it need to really build something that's actually quite prominent. Um, in 2012, I got bit by the bug of startups, and basically, um, what would it take to basically build my own company? And I've always had this idea around, um, it has to be something around, um, at that time, machine learning was very early, very, very early. Um, there were some interesting papers around, um, interesting learning algorithms that were, were if computationally efficient enough, they can do some amazing things. And these are basically neural networks. And just out of interest, I was, you know, being a software engineer at heart, but having taken a look at all those uh, papers, I would just, I would just actually look at Google Scholar and just read stuff. <laughs> it, um, um, and sometimes I don't understand a lot of some of it at the time, but um, I had an idea. My first company was uh, to build a product that basically used a machine learning algorithm that is would match artists with venues. And that was in 2011. Um, so I had safe savings. I quit my job at XM. I gave them a month notice and I set out to create my first company. And um, it was a lot harder than I thought. Um, even the, just from the data perspective itself, kind of understanding how would you collect this information? What is a representative sample of a data that actually gives a good snapshot of how arts are well are doing? How would you even collect this data about about <clears throat> venues and which city should you start with. It's just a lot of stuff that I had to figure out quite early on that eventually I thought that, you know, maybe this is not the best time to do the startup. And about a year and a half in, we decided to close down. Um, and, but ever since, I've just been always been connected with something that is about, about, about learning algorithm, not necessarily machine learning, but how a, a methodology that you feed in information can learn and, and there's two ways you can actually think about that. You know, you have the statistics world where there's a totally different approach trying to understand the distribution of, of, a, 
of, of a population, basically, to understand the, um, the, the, the way this data was generated. And unlike machine learning, it's a different approach to trying to think about how to optimize a loss function, which is basically there's an engineered way to reduce this number. The more it's, that number is going down, the more probably the algorithm is actually learning. Two different worlds, you know, and um, it wasn't until um, 2014 I was, uh, I, I ended up kind of doing some interesting work here in Los Angeles where I had a, a decent consulting practice where I would help some um, companies here who are, who are mostly um, um, in their growth stage. And um, me and a team of um, engineers would come in and build any kind of ML solutions inside their companies. And usually we got introduced through um, a close friend that knows these founders that they believe that there might be some um, advantage to have any kind of predictive analytics system inside these companies. And most of the use cases are always around marketing. What I mean by that, um, you will find like a, a big subscription company that's about three years old, has some data in their subscri subscribers, and they want to figure out a way. Um, the most common thing at the time, 2014, was basically churn prediction, which is how can we really understand some of these folks who come in early on? And how can we figure out what will it take for them well, not to renew the subscription again? And, and, and most of these founders, surprisingly back then, heard about that from a tutorial in some machine learning website somewhere. And there's not really a strong business need for it initially. Um, 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 it's still right now, I'm not sure. You know, I think churn is an interesting product to work on if you're like a Verizon or a, or a, or a, or a, or a Netflix. But um, for the smaller you know, companies, it's, 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 I don't think it's the right problem to work on at the time. Um, so um, I remember getting pulled to a couple of these projects and I just ever since got, got a lot more interested into learning algorithms themselves. Um, and then what happened was um, at the same time, a lot of interesting coincidences started coming together in 2014, 2015, where I met an interesting individual, his name is Peter Diamandis. And Peter Diamandis is, uh, he owns a, um, an interesting organization here in Los Angeles called the XPRIZE, where he offers prizes anywhere between 1 million to about 10 million to solve one of you know, the world's biggest problems. And most recently, he's, um, what really attracted me to Peter was I heard about the Ansari X Prize, which was a um, an X Prize where he always Peter always wanted to go to space, um, but he ended up becoming a doctor. He went to MIT, but um, um, NASA and of course uh, FAA will never allow any non-astronauts to ever go to space. And those before the space race happened right now with Elon or or um, Jeff Bezos or whatnot. And he created an an, an X Prize for a group of engineers, and he said, I'll give you $10 million if you build a spacecraft to go space, dock for two weeks, come back, and, and dock again. And five years later, um, um, a team of engineers did that, and they got awarded this $10 million, um, um, 10 million prize, and that, and, that, and, that, and that spaceship ended up becoming Virgin um, Galactic that um, Richard Branson recently flew about a month and a half ago that basically um, Peter incentivized. And ever since I've seen him just kind of like think really outside the box and serve some of the world's biggest problems. And that really left Mark with me. And I was able to get him in one of my events in DC and had him to talk with a group of folks, basically talk about the mindset of really um, moonshots, you know. And moonshots differ from population to another, meaning that, for example, I come from Sudan, I'm black, um, moonshots to me necessarily doesn't mean going to the moon or going to space. Moonshots to me are mostly about, I call them cultural moonshots, equality, um, representation. These are moonshots in my, in my, in my opinion, you know, having, you know, whatever, you know, um, um, equality means whatever domain you're actually in. But, um, that's 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 kind of like where my head is mostly going at the time. But meeting Peter really helped me kind of like think 
about what would it take to really think about really hard problems and not giving up about them. Um, and that left a strong mark with me. And, um, and then I started noticing a lot of patterns around some of the entrepreneurs that he knows, some of the entrepreneurs in the circles that, that, that are around that thinking where um, a very tough problem, you never give up. And technologically, there is an advantage that you can use right now to really advance um, um, this 10x or this big problem that you're working on. Um, um, that led to an interesting, um, uh, during that time, interesting time where I was about to get married to my wife right now. And um, Trump got elected. And, um, and, um, and we were scheduling our wedding early 2017. And then what happened was um, my mother had been coming to the United States for the past 20 years, easy with, with the visa and whatnot. And right around February of 2017, my mom got a visa to come to the US to come to attend our wedding. And then I remember like uh, two weeks later, she got a call back from the airline saying, um, I'm sorry, you'll not be able to enter the United States. Um, there's a ban coming from your country. And, and that was actually part of the Muslim ban. And, and you know, living in the United States, coming here in 9-11, living inside of DC, um, you know, when we were younger, being a black Muslim kid in technology, you know, we kind of like went underneath the radar, you know, just go to go to school, work, keep your head down, don't think too much about it. And and the Iraq war was kind of like an interesting thing. It, 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 I, I remember just didn't know how to think about it, but I just remember being upset, angry. And um, it was it was it was not a good time for Muslims in in the, in, in in the United States. Um, and this happened, and this one surprisingly, I'm not sure, because I was a lot, a lot older. And that did not sit well with me. And I just remember my mom calling me, just said, you know, Muslim, Muslim ban happened, I can't come, sorry. And I remember sitting there, just, 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 just not right. This is not right. Um, so I decided to stop all my consulting work and machine learning here in LA and decided to start, it was about time to start my second business idea. And, um, and I started my first company. Um, the second company is called Unbias, which is initially started a, as a, a political data science company. And um, what we did was we wanted to find a way to help a lot of underrepresented um, um, candidates come from underrepresented communities to run for office. And for us, usually a typical customer would be anyone from running from congressional seat all the way to a Senate seat. So this is, or, or even a gubernatorial seat. So this is kind of like our sweet spot. And we found kind of like an interesting um, um, advantage where we were able to collect a voter file, um, which is our, if we can just apply for any, um, um, a FOIA form from any state. And some states you can only pay a dollar and they'll give you the entire voter file. Or you can pay somewhere north of you know a dollar per citizen per voter, and and you can purchase that. They actually send you a DVD of all the information to your house. Um, um, you take that information, and actually we were able to use some really interesting predictive um, a predictive model that basically, if you give me um, someone's zip code, even down to the street name, and you don't know anything about them. Um, we can really tell you um, how far in the spectrum they are, other than the far right and far left. That was actually a challenge a lot. On, for, on the political spectrum. On, on the political spectrum. That was a tough challenge, especially, that's easy if you live in New York, here in California, of course, you know, some of the things you don't need some miles for. But if you live in the Midwest, some parts of Florida, that's that's tricky. How would you know some of these pockets? And all you know is just, voters information the name and whatnot and at the same time cambridge analytica was doing a big there was a uh, the investigation around cambridge analytica was not as big at the time and when we were starting on bias at the time we're slowly starting to see the unfold of the cambridge analytica if you're not familiar with cambridge analytica it was basically a big political 
data science, political data, particularly in the consulting firm that worked on the Trump campaign. And, and they did some illegal activity where they were able to extract data from inside Facebook users, map that information from Facebook into their into the voter file, which is basically voter information. And they're really able to really provide some really advanced targeting on Facebook based on that information and the way and the illegal well, it's depending on the it's and illegal. So Facebook claims that they um they should not have, have access to this that good information for these voters, but for somehow they did. Um, it's 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 um, no one knows they were actually let in the back door, or there was some sort of agreement that no one knows about. But anyways, um, um, a lot of people assume that the predictive targeting that Cambridge Analytica did with in the Trump campaign was one of the reasons that um, he actually won. I think Trump won because he won. <laughs> I, that's, that's nice. That's, I think he won, I think he ran a great campaign and, you know, and he won. Um, did these predictive targeting tools work? They were quite sophisticated for the time, but it's really hard to draw any causal, you know, you know, causal reasoning behind if some of these targeting actually was actually related to his, to him winning. Um, but the company yeah, so, actually- So Mohammed, there's, there's two aspects here of technology, right? One right. is looking at the voter data looking at environmental data, right? Um, and then predicting people's political preference, right? That's kind of the first step. Right. Um, and, and then the second step was then using a platform like Facebook to then feed people stories, ads, etc., to try to, to, to then try to, to, to feed those specific people ads targeted directly to them to get them to either vote more likely in a particular way or to dissuade them from voting by giving them you know certain information that would you know discourage or scare them away from the polls right so there's there's two aspects of the technology one is the prediction of how people might vote and then there's the second part of it which is where you try to then influence them to either stay away from the polls or influence them to you know, be more more likely to go to the polls and vote, right? Right. So there is, you're absolutely right. So there's two methods. There is the who and the what. And the who is is more important than the what. Because if you send the wrong message to the wrong person, first of all, at a huge scale campaign, that can become very costly, very expensive. And two, um, it also shows the lack of... Um, credibility that the campaign has when they send an incorrect message to to a voter. I'm sure we all got this text messages from candidates, whatever state you live or, or congressional district you're living in. Hi, how you doing? Please donate this, this and that and whatnot. And it's just, well, I'm not even in the same city. <laughs> you know, so, so, you, so you get that a lot, you know, that's not their fault. That's the, some of the information that they get. Um, so yes, uh, the one thing that Cambridge Analytica was, um, were really being, um, admonished for was using psychographics, which is basically how can they really tie psychological information to do this targeting? This is what really scared a lot of people. What I mean by that, they're actually even able to really pinpoint the psychological preference or profile based on five psychological profiles um, of each voter. And, um, um, and and surprisingly, the, the founders are actually going around talking in big conferences about how they're able to use a psychographic profile and targeting, getting these amazing results. And it's just, and um, it was um, uh, it, it, the first the first few six months of unbiased was very difficult for us to come again because we believe we were one of the good guys where we really wanted to find a really an affordable way to use, you know available voter file that is you can legally get from any um, 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 from state governments um, and provide some sort of advantage for some of these underrepresented candidates. Um, it's very expensive for them to buy that voter file. It's very expensive for them to target. And it's very hard for them to figure out who should we talk to. And we wanted to solve a piece of that puzzle 
in a fast, affordable way. Um, and we did that for about a year and a half. Um, we had interesting campaigns. We have about five campaigns. We had a huge gubernatorial campaign in Michigan. Probably was going to be the first Muslim governor in Michigan. Um, he did not win. And um, um, and towards the end of 2018, the midterm elections, we started somewhere around 2017, around 2018. That's a year, a year and six months in. I had an interesting conversation with my wife, and I just said, you know what? I don't think I want to do politics. And uh, for personal reasons, for me, is I'm, I'm, I'm not that of a polarizing human being to begin with. I'm just not. not I'm, I feel myself more of in the middle. I like um, I understand both sides. I like to listen to both sides. It's just um, in that kind of work, you need to be... You need to be. You need to be in both. You need to be one side more than the other, and um, I was just not because I was just. I was just not. It's not my demeanor. So so it was not for me as well. And also, the second part was it's such a seasonal business where every four years there's an election. Every two years there's an election. Um, you can live in Virginia every other year. There's an election. Um, so it was not kind of like a. Um, a business model that that I saw kind of like potentially can can, can get us kind of like the, the growth that I wanted to see. Um, the biggest lessons I learned there is a couple. One, um, data is everything. If you want to work in machine learning or any kind of data product, um, having access direct line to the data is important, and the quality and how clean the data is, um, and and if it's collected by a government entity, that means you have no say in how it's labeled, how it's collected, how it's generated. So the quality of itself um, becomes questionable after time. And you can sit down and tweak as many models as you want, but if the data itself is just not that great quality, at some point, it's, 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 we, we spent a lot of time trying to tweak some of the algorithms that we had initially. And most of our we had a couple of progression in terms of like models. We went from multi Bayesian stats, mostly understanding, understanding kind of like distribution of voters will have, voters will vote in a specific district all the way down to a precinct to even, for example, understanding, for example, how likely a specific voter would um, support a specific candidate. Um, so multiple models come from the same voter file, but the data itself is just not that great. It's just your models won't turn out that great. Um, um, at the time, I had kind of like a question back to my wife, like, should I uh, continue with, you know, find another market for unbiased, or should I just, you know, you know, look into the next election season? And I knew I was done with, with the elections, and something kind of fell in my lap where <clears throat> I got introduced to a big health system in. Um, in the Midwest, in Detroit, it's, it's, it's the biggest health system. And they kind of liked the work that we did in, in politics, some of the campaigns we worked on. And the interesting use case was um, most health systems, um, they do have a lot of data. It's a highly regulated. <clears throat> and they have no idea what's happening with patients outside um, the health system, but they have a lot of information what's happening inside the health system. So meaning that once you enter any kind of hospital health system or any kind of record on file about this specific patient, they might have an idea of where you live, what is the ecosystem that you live in, um, do you live in a poor, impoverished neighborhood or not, do you even have access to transportation to come around, do you take a bus? How's the pollution? How's the weather? Do you have clean water? Are you in the middle of a food desert? And in the, um, in, the in, in, in healthcare, they call it um, mostly, or in public health domain, they call it social determinants of health. And there was a big um, initiative inside the health system was let's understand the patient better and, and let's determine how strongly correlate or co mostly causal social determinants of health to certain health outcomes for these patients. 
I'm coming out fresh out of politics and I'm getting pulled into this. And the exciting part for me was because we know a lot about, you know, coming from politics about the voter information. We know how to build really interesting, you know, predictive models in voting and support and many other things. And they were trying to do something a little bit similar, given you understand the environment about the patient, can you really predict interesting health outcomes? Um, <clears throat> and because uh, most data in the voter world is at the voter level. So you always work at the individual level, not at the city level. So you're not working population, work with individuals. You want to target one by one. Um, healthcare, most, there's a lot of interesting models inside healthcare. I'm talking about there's like a model, for example, predicting sepsis in the next 12 hours. There's mortality rates models inside some of these, um, some of these um, um, health systems. If, and, and if, and in, in, in most health systems, there are uh, models that are basically purchased from the outside of the health systems and where they, the third party vendor that comes in probably has a snapshot of entire patient population in the United States. And if you live in a city in like Detroit or in Los Angeles, some of the patients inside your health system probably is inside their data sets. So it's easy for them to actually build predictive models as representative sample, representative of the entire United States, and your city happens to be a subset of that sample. Um, so, well, so largely, these are top-down models. They're right? hugely top. It looks at the population in aggregate, and then you have the ability to drill down. But it's still at the upper levels, uh, predicted, you know, normalized, right? Giving you that insight versus starting at the granular, you know, per person type of, of modeling? No, they do have per person type of modeling. They do. So they have a huge uh, patient information. And, um, but uh, the, the biggest lesson also coming in from politics was understanding representative samples, meaning that you really have to understand sampling especially when it comes to understanding populations, is a big deal, which is, uh, I'm happy I, I got that skill from stats, in, especially in politics, where there's not anything to do. It's kind of like thinking about it as, imagine you have a pot of soup, and for example, you stir in some salt, you know, and you start want to taste, you know, how much salt you have in your soup, and basically for you to have a representative sample of all the salt molecules inside the soup, you have to stir you have to stir pretty well. If you don't stir, for example, if you take a spoon and you go to the edge of a pot, it might not be that representative. You might some some parts of the pot will have salt, some parts won't. So you need to do stirring. And stirring is stirring basically is a way for you to find a representative sample of of a population. And you do that by having access to some part of the population. Now there are, or data sets in the entire population, but now there are certain methods where you can get around that. Statistics have done an amazing well, amazing things around that. Um, um, an interesting um, a professor out of Columbia, his name is Andrew Goldman, really figured out a really interesting method. He calls it Mr. P, where you can find a specific you know, population and you can actually post-stratify that to the entire population, even if you don't have information that the entire population which is kind of like a very clever way of understanding. You have an idea of a subpopulation, but you don't have an idea on a bigger population. How could you do the mapping between both? And that, uh, that, that thinking around understanding populations makes you think about holistically about how the data is generated, what's included in the sample, and you're just kind of like just doing some really interesting, just basic analysis on the data itself, because you might be looking at such a... a um, a far removed um, sample of the population that does not nothing get nothing really representative about the population you're trying to model or understand about. Um, in tech, unfortunately, most companies are collecting information about their customers, about their users, and whatnot. And the data that you have about your users are about your users. They're not about the city. They're not about the country. They're not about any kind. They're just about some people that you're targeted through marketing. And that's it. So for you to really build model on that, it's, it's, it's just unique to your little environment. You need to think a lot bigger. And how does my customers and my users relate to the bigger population that you're trying to target or work with? 
Um, so these are the biggest lessons of coming from politics, understanding that. But um, with healthcare, they really understood, they have amazing statisticians as well. Um, they really understood, for example, this is the population that we live in, especially if it's a safety net hospital. And, and they do understand that, you know, certain terms of health is a big deal. And basically they understand also as well, if they're able to provide programs, so there are programs with some health systems to really address some of these social determinants, they might actually, you know, lower some high adverse effects in their, in their population. We got looked into modeling social determinants of health for this big health system. And we had a data set we were able to find, we combined with their data set. And um, it was um, working with a big health system, like a behemoth one was coming from a start from political campaigns to that was challenging for me in terms of, quite honestly, I did not know how to handle such a big customer. Honestly, I did not know how to handle the entire, you know, scope or understanding the transitions between all the stakeholders inside the at some point we're talking to the chief medical officer and at some point we're talking to the chief analytics inside the health system and who buys and and i flew there twice it was just an interesting um, um approach that was quite new to me um, um six months in eventually we were not able to do this deal <laughs> and um and i walked away um with two things one i understand how to really understand I, I walked out understanding what representative representative samples mean in politics and in healthcare? I walked in. I walked out with the amount of rigor that healthcare professionals, especially in machine learning, which is an entire domain called bioinformatics, um, try to do their best to explain predictive models. I have never seen anything like it. Um, um, and there's a few. So today I have about four amazing researchers that I just have alerts for their Google Scholar. Every time they publish a paper, I just, I just, you know, on the weekend, I just grab my coffee in the morning, I just go over it. Because the amount of rigor that they really spent to really, really um, try to go, the methodology around understanding some of these models and how to explain, and how to explain some of these models to the clinicians to, because there's, there's researching, you know, you know, certain outcomes and there's clinical care and there's a gap in between. And usually this gap, what I think machine learning practitioners in healthcare and the, and the, and the, um, and the, and, the, and, and people who are close to the patients, they're not communicating that much. This is some of the challenges that I've seen. So they have this amazing information that's quite accurate. And then, then there's the, the doctor's information here provides care. It's just, so they have a, they spend a lot of effort to try to explain some of their methodology and what really happens that I have not seen in other industries in machine learning or AI. I haven't seen completely. Even companies coming from Google who are trying to get into healthcare and they do have amazing practitioners, but the people that inside of healthcare are doing an amazing um, work, um, um, nothing compared to some of these big companies I've seen in the past. Um, walking outside of that, um, um, there was a, um, a research paper that I read in healthcare while I go work with this health system was predicting mortality rates. And they're using um, EHR data, which is basically patient information inside of health systems. They usually are in big, big, huge systems. Um, one is made was called Epic. And you have granular information, for example, if a patient showed up in the ICU, which is basically what are the time by time um, 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 events or logs for the specific patients to very zoomed out patient information, for example, understanding um, what prescriptions did they fill in the past three years. So you have this, if they ever showed up to the ICU and you have this information, how many times they actually fill this prescription. And mind you, the timeline and the horizon is quite sparse, meaning that at some point they had this condition, they never saw them again until like two years later, they showed up at the ICU, they never showed up again. And then they, so, so it's very hard to understand and create a model to really understand mortality of the specific patient. And because predictive models, most at least I've seen, um, especially there's a temporal component, meaning there is a time temporal component, 
it's very hard to really figure out and predict time to event models, which is when when something will happen. And that to me, I feel like is the most beneficial, useful type of models can exist. You know, in AI, you have a model that is what is. Is an image, this is a cat, this is a dog. This is a song, is it a hip hop, is it a pop? What is? But um, when an event is gonna happen, in my opinion, I think it's one of the most, most useful models that AI is can benefit today in any kind of situations, either it's in predictive maintenance, either it's in traffic, either it's in transportation, either it's in healthcare, in my world it's actually music. Um, what are the time to event and what can we do if we are accurate enough? Because the model is just a, a small version of the truth, it's not the entire truth, but if it's true enough, you can have a very strong understanding of the past and also give you predictive power to the future. And that's kind of like what if it's true enough, I'm, I'm in that half glass, uh, half, glass half full kind of thinking. And the paper that, that I saw that they're working on, it's this researcher coming out of Stanford, his name is Nigam Shah. And he built this interesting model, it's called, um, it's a mortality model, where how do I represent this patient information as a vector, given all these continuums, given all these data sets from ICU, given from um, 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 prescription, um, prescription-based data, all the way to ICU data, and over a horizon. And how do I stack that up to create a predictive model? And this model will probably be used in multiple points around the hospital, given that when this patient shows up at some point, they get flagged, let's give them care right there and then, because they're not, the, um, not, they're not quite aware of some of the conditions that the models um, are actually telling. And the paper basically is, is, is imagining where um, you have to combine multiple data sets and if you have enough information about the patient over a long horizon of time, and also if you're very clever in how you split the data between training and test, you can get really accurate about certain things. And, and what I like also about Nigam's or some of the, his research mostly is of course, in healthcare, it's very hard to publish papers with actual data sets. You can't, it's impossible. Um, but uh, they do as much as they can to explain the parameters of the model. What do they use? Either it's a neural network or gradient boosted trees or whatever it is. And some of the parameters and why they went from this parameter to that parameter. That to me is, is goes in, inside to understand their thinking around the methodology itself, what worked, what didn't. Um, and I'm a big fan of open source as well. So to me, you know, papers, academic papers are, are a huge open source repository. I feel like everyone can read right now and just learn just by reading. You don't need access to data or anything of that. Yeah, the, the, the one observation you made, Mohammed, that, that struck me, and that's something I've seen in, in my work, is the comment you made around the rigor uh, in healthcare. Um, and I've had this discussion with friends, and it comes down to, in some industries, what's the cost of being wrong in your, in your prediction, right? In, uh, in industrial, right? right? If you're trying to predict a failure of right. a jet engine and you're wrong, wow. right? What's the cost right. there, right? In healthcare, if you're trying to predict, um, you know, what kind of medicine, you know, what, what concentration of medicine someone needs to properly, you know, attack a cancer cell, right? What's the cost of being wrong? Well, the cost is somebody could die, right? Um, but if you look at politics, right, what's the cost of being wrong if you send the wrong ad to the wrong potential voter, right? Right. There's not a huge cost there, right? Google is a trillion dollar company based on advertising, what's right. their cost of being wrong? If they send an ad for, you know, drill bits to somebody who's looking for baby strollers, right? There's no cost of being wrong there. So there's a tremendous upside to being right in, commercial, in many commercial industries. Um, and in other industries, there's a tremendous cost of being wrong, right? So in banking and finance, right? If you're... Mm -hmm algorithms 
mm-hmm. incorrectly assigned credit scores and 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 lending, right, to certain people. Um, mm-hmm. There's a tremendous cost to being wrong there, reputational cost, financial cost, financial penalties, right? Um, so uh, the there there is a significant rigor in some industries. Uh, there's a need to make sure to uh, to reduce the risk of being wrong, and there's a need to thoroughly understand uh, and make your algorithms explainable um, to outsiders, uh, either from a regulatory perspective or just from a perspective of trying to explain it and get a second opinion. Um, so that that's that's one of the differences I've seen, and I think you've lived it. Is moving from the political space to the health to the healthcare space is the amount of rigor that's necessary to make sure that you're not wrong. <laughs> you yeah, actually, you make amazing points. At the same time, most of the models that I've noticed, even in healthcare, they're not even deployed. Um, and the reason, other than other than the rigor, um, there's a big gap between what the model says and what actions you should take. That in itself is a this entire science coming out of that, which is we said explainability, interpretability, interpretability of the models, but um, there's still a big gap. What do we do about those things? You know, what does that mean? You know, so there's still challenge. So even if they're right, even you know, we are quite often right about our predictions. What should we do next, and how can we actually turn that to action? And there's a big gaps there right now, and and the idea of a jet engine actually failing, that's, that's an amazing, actually, it's also a use case you made me think about. Um, and, 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 and there's not really actions you can take there <laughs> in such a use case, you know, unless it's completely automated. Um, and yes, um, that, that's, that's the important things Like I remember walking out of the healthcare system on rigor and trying to explain exactly what goes into its models and the cost is pretty high as well. And also, <clears throat> so so in many ways, that should that should make us feel safer, right? I think, and more confident in the healthcare because um, it's important for them to be right when they use advanced math and algorithms, right, to predict and to make recommendations, right? They, um, right. you know, at least for me, it gives me confidence that 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 they're they're trying to put the right due diligence into that. Right. Surprisingly, I, I actually yesterday I was reading a paper by by the research I'm, I'm following, Nigam Shaw, and, <clears throat> and and there was an article that came out recently around how the big report that came out about how many of these third party healthcare models have been wrong lately, for specifically for sepsis. This is sepsis is becoming kind of like the de facto model that a lot of you know, it's easy to predict across, you know, most healthcare systems, you don't have a lot of data, so you can actually figure that out. Um, but how often are they wrong? And, and even when they're wrong, and even that it's, it's actually a lot of false positives that they're not getting picked up. And, and this is actually the question of fairness and, and not fairness, but also understanding how well does your model work in different populations? You know, if your typical population is an average white male to 65 who's coming in with pre-existing conditions like obesity and heart problems and whatnot and, and diabetes, and this is what your mom's trained on, and then you have an African-American walk into a hospital who has issues with diabetes and blood pressure and whatnot all their life, um, how would that model work on that kind of population? And what's that look like? And especially if that population only represents about 3% of your data set or 5% of your data set, how do you think about that? So, so th- there's that, you know, and then um, some health systems actually are requiring um, some explainability and fairness reports on their models. How does your models actually work on certain populations? And it comes down always to having a representative sample or try your best to get a representative sample. Sampling. And, and, and I think we actually saw that with some of the mm-hmm. vaccines for right. COVID. Right, a couple of the trials were delayed. I forget which 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 mm-hmm. manufacturer it was, mm-hmm. but some of the vaccine trials approvals for the trials were delayed because they did not have a sufficiently diverse uh, set of of trial participants. That's true, and it's not easy. It's not easy. 
it's not easy getting this this participants even in you know in a randomized control trial or in a sample. It's really not easy. And this is what the entire polling industry right now is slowly coming to a collapse because they assume they had representative samples of certain populations, and some of these polls just keep coming back wrong and wrong and wrong. It's just it's just sampling is getting a lot harder right now. Collecting, understanding the population, and seeing, understanding what. Um, what, what what outcomes can we really really determine from these samples? Um, but the rigor that I've always even even the rigor in healthcare that I've also noticed is they're really trying to standardize research of certain data sets. So there is this um, this this initiative between health systems that they use this data um, this data model. It's called OMOP. Um, can't remember the acronym what it means, but um, I think it's talking about a nonprofit outside of DC and where. Um, healthcare uh, machine learning practitioners did not have a lot of data sets to test their models on and and, and compare notes because there's a lot of regulatory problems. And even if when they did, the data sets were very um, different, which you called ICU, they were called different, this health system, what they called, um, you know, it's, it's, it's just they're two different systems and, and the way they were logged and they're cataloged, and the schemas and the architectures of these data sets are completely different from these health systems. So this nonprofit came in and said, "Like, let's standardize this," and basically said, "Here is how we're going to talk about ICU data. Here's how we're going to talk about pharmaceutical data. This is how we're going to talk about this data." And they have this huge ETL um, scripts that basically takes your existing data sets and automatically standardizes it, normalizes it to this standard that any kind of practitioner can start running models on and they can compare notes because the data structure is normalized. The, the models are used inside uh, these, uh, um, uh, used inside of OMOP is standardized. So you can really compare notes. Did you get this metric? Did you get this accuracy? Did you get this false positives? Did you get this? So they're able to really do some really amazing stuff. And um, and most of right now, I see a lot of great, Amer great researchers in healthcare. They refer some of their data sets, some of their research was done on mostly an OMOP data model. We figured out how to move to OMOP data model. It performed well there. And now you can have some sort of benchmark to really understand. So this is how far they're really pushing um, the rigor behind um, 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 most of these models. And as I, my understanding of machine learning and data science as a whole, which I think they're two different, becoming a little bit two different kind of disciplines right now. Um, I'm becoming more data centric at this point, less about models, less about the new fancy, you know, model that's, 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 that's trained in billion parameters and whatnot, more about the data. And, and right now with our current company, with the bias, this, this third iteration, which is we're in music, um, so real quick, so 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 um, we let's take a step back. Um, we took that idea from healthcare and trying to understand if I understand, well, not understand. My heart never left music after working at XM all this time. That conversation having with um, Junior Marvin at a at a bar in D.C. him playing reggae. It's, it's that it's always been a you know thing to me and music. It's always been a uh, a passion of mine, but something that is just brought brings people together in sort of different ways that I thought I'm not sure politics might bring or healthcare is quite you know quite regulated in terms of the data. Um, music as an industry itself is quite fickle. There's a lot of things happening there, but um, I saw a big opportunity where um, I'm still kind of deeply connected to. Um, underrepresented kind of like communities or mostly you find uh, folks mostly in um, who end up kind of um, the best way I can explain this is um, um, discuss and talk a lot about their about their challenges through music through art through stuff and that to me kind of like um, maybe there's something there around culture that machine learning can do not necessarily in politics, not necessarily in healthcare, but what if, for example, the big moonshot is culture, the big moonshot is 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 understanding like how we can actually elevate culture to a way in that in that sense. And what is 
the distribution of the people in certain cultures that are speaking a lot louder than other folks and how can we actually amplify some of that either through art or whatnot. And this is kind of like what got me back to music um, after working in tech in, in Xerius XM, but now doing this. And that being said, the, the interesting part was if I knew a lot about a song similar to a, to a patient of a, of a health system understanding a lot about a patient, can they predict mortality? We decided thinking if we can really understand a lot about a song from the song level, from the audio itself, can we understand how, how it's going to perform on Spotify or YouTube or whatnot? And if an artist that is, you know, maybe can afford a few dollars here and there to figure things out, to promote this in the right way, how would that improve their, their, their career? And that kind of what kind of like kicked me off about two years ago into this, into what Unbiased is today. So Unbiased today is a, we call ourselves a listener intelligence platform. And what we do right now, we listen to about 90,000 songs a week. And we really understand music consumption across the United States. And our customers, not only musicians, we talk to huge fitness companies that we all know. We talk also to retail companies that you all know who have people play some of their music inside of their retail stores um, and also arts as well. And basically music is becoming a little more audio overall, becoming an integral part of people's lives, especially as our lives get a lot more digitized today. And ultimately, we help the artists to, to understand where placement really matters in terms of the music and the art they create. And that everything is going to be a hit and that everything should be a hit. But ultimately, if there's a chance that you could be a fit in a certain context that you're not aware of, you definitely need to try and bias. And everything starts with an audio file. And we tell you basically how likely the song to generate X amount of streams, but also we tell you how likely it is to fit in certain kind of placements. Either this would be great for running, great for jogging, and, and it's up to you to figure out what kind of relationships you have existing to make those necessary steps to improve the probability of your music to go forward. So, um, so Mohammed, so would that be a, a decision for the artist to make or, for example, for the streaming service? You know, if a particular song might be more uh, applicable to running routines and exercise routines, then play it in the mornings and the evenings versus in the middle of the day, right? So is this something you're selling to the artist so they can make those decisions? Or is this something you're selling to the streaming services so they can schedule their their, their songs uh, more more effectively? Sure. So um, we sell to the artist and their business decision uh, makers mostly. And um, if you're an independent artist and you're just starting off, um, bias might be a little bit too advanced for you to begin with. Um, we usually work with certain kind of artists, at least for now, that might change in the future. An artist that has a team that helps them kind of like monetize their music. And surprisingly, mm -hmm. there's a lot of them. <laughs> there are. And um, and the streaming services um, are, they have some of the technology that we have, but not, I think, as advanced in terms of like really understanding what's inside the song like we do. We spend a lot of time there. That's kind of like a or competency, like taking the audio file, really understanding what's in it. Um, um, but the artist, um, the only path to revenue today is not necessarily streaming services. There's many different ways you can generate right now revenue. Um, streaming is a way to do it. Um, streaming is becoming kind of like a, fortunately, like an influencer kind of play where how many followers you have in a, in a streaming service determines somewhat how much how much um, streams you might get, but ultimately, if the music doesn't have it, and the and we understand all the entire you know music consumption, no matter how much following you know you might get something, but the song might flat out pretty fast or it might dip after some time. Um, so ultimately, we want to you want to know that your art or your music actually has the potential to go a lot more than you think. And the typical use case is for us is. Um, with the label side is they spend a lot of money basically promoting a specific record. So that's, and so far it's, um, usually we predict 180 days into the future. It usually takes about two weeks to know how a song's gonna do. And so far we've been lucky. Everything's been working great for us. Not lucky, but I mean, so far we're quite happy. And the, the lesson learned here with this is, unlike healthcare and politics, where with music, 
listening to 90, phones, song, 90 songs a week is something that I am able to do and automate. So every week we have, we listen to music, we model it, and we, we update our models on a weekly basis. Is That's becoming a lot more challenging and our organization today is moving towards a lot more, um, not organization, I'll take that back, company, <laughs> organization, yeah. Um, um, more data-centric. So every tools that we build, we build internally is around the data, how we collect it, how we catalog it, what does it mean? Um, which train sets kind of like version that work in that model? What kind of actors we got with that? What kind of songs was kind of like songs for certain genres, certain era, kind of like throw our predictions out and we have multiple predictions and whatnot. And most of them actually time to event models, kind of that mortality one that we saw in healthcare. A lot of them is that. It's exactly the exact same one. And So you, and you're, predicting, you're predicting the mortality of a song. <laughs> It's the inverse. <laughs> yeah, it's the it's the inverse of the song. It's exactly that. It's exactly yeah. that. And um, and um, and 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 that's kind of like where I see potentially most you know most data or AI machine learning companies going. If it's 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 all it's uh, we focus a lot more on the data and then um, the talent that exists in understanding some of these data sets and. And moving it around is becoming such a challenge right now. And the more we look into that world, we think about we, we're building our own small tools all the time, you know, versus buying, you know, looking at big, big products that actually helps to do some of this stuff. Um, but also, it's been in such a interesting journey going from understanding exactly what's in politics and then sending the samples all the way to music right now. And with music, the first thing I remember going into this project way before we were launching the product and where we are right now is what will it take for me to to find a sample of what is being consumed today and it's not in the billboard hits it's not in what you think young kids are singing on tiktok it's none of that and how can you frame the problem to find that mute find that data set so that's one and two um how can i really understand and map the DNA of a song itself in the atomic level and really understand that and what are the trends happens over time and how far should I look into the future? Some songs are breaking out in like a year a year out. Some songs are taking two weeks. There's a lot of variability there. And basically, um, we're not looking at, you know, outliers and trying to catch outliers. Most music takes time to release, to breathe, to figure things out. And that's not about the songs, about the consumer and listening behavior. And it's kind of like what we captured and understanding that. And if I have not, if I did not come from politics or went through this exercise in healthcare, I probably would be dealing with a lot of problems right now, a lot of challenges trying to figure out how can I really think about this problem in a way. But ultimately it's the framing of the problem itself and, and how can I actually take it and actually build something with it. Yeah. So what, what what's interesting for, for the listeners, right, that may not be data scientists, right? What's interesting is that, uh, you know, the, the techniques that were used in political uh, uh, advertising, political predictions, those same techniques applied in healthcare, right? Bringing in the right. environmental factors, right? Um, and uh, using that to understand people better right politically and then right. using the environmental factors to understand people's health needs a little bit better um, and then the techniques that uh, were used in in healthcare uh, now you're using many of those techniques in music to you know so you went from predicting the health of people in many ways to predicting the health uh, of songs Right. right, and of you know a particular music um, ecosystem. Right, um, right. So, right. you know what what I tell people is that the the wonderful thing about data science mm -hmm. is that you don't have to be an astronaut mm -hmm. to be in space. You can be a data scientist. You don't have to be a musician to work in the music industry. You can be a data scientist. Mm -hmm. So, uh, data today, uh, data science today for me. Is kind is kind of the uh, the career that can take you anywhere, right? The skill set that can take you anywhere as your interests change over life.
Um, you know, you might be interested in music and then politics and then healthcare, and you might go back to music and you can take everything you've learned and all the tool sets that, that you've built and all the skills that you have and um, add value in any um, professional or personal space that might interest you. Absolutely. Very well said, actually. And <clears throat> to add to that is um, the exercise as a data scientist or starting into data science, the exercise of getting into collecting your own data set in a manual way teaches you a lot about the expectations you have, about the outcomes from any kind of models you're trying to learn or trying to teach or trying to train. That exercise itself by collecting your own data, no matter how small it is, starting with an Excel sheet, just rows of just collect certain things, just collect it and just do it yourself initially. It's such a, it's just an interesting exercise because the longer you spend a lot of time understanding what's in those data sets. And a lot of us, um, you, you spend a lot of time understanding how the models work because now you can really expect the models to work the way they should work. And, and, and that really brings clarity to your learning, brings speed also to your learning as well. Um, but it's also that's it's it's just creating your own data set. It's 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 a lot of work, um, but um, I highly recommend it for anyone getting into data science. Thanks, Mohammed. Great tips for uh, for the young people today trying to get into this business. So, um, Mohammed, thank you very much for uh, spending your time with us today. Great stories, great successes. Um, I wish you all the best. Um, and for the listeners out there, if you're interested in, in understanding how analytics can help you if you're an artist, um, your website, Mohammed, is? www.unbiased.co. Excellent. And if people want to reach out to you, what's the best way to, to reach out? Please reach out to me. I'm at Mohammed, M-O-H-A-M-E-D, at unbiased.co. Please reach out. Outstanding. Mohammed, thank you mm -hmm. so much. James, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of James & Co. If you got any value from today's episode, hit subscribe and share this show with a friend. And if you need any advice on adding analytics to your IoT devices, or if you need help building a predictive analytics solution for your business, we've probably been there and done that. Search for James Caton on LinkedIn.